You're listening to the Palladium Park Podcast. This show and our website, palladiumpark.com, are designed to improve thinking and communication skills. Your hosts are the co-founders of Palladium Park, Jenna Shaw and Colin Wheeler. Together, they explore the vastness of intellectual curiosities in the world. Like and subscribe to this show to never miss a new episode. Although we are consultants, we are not consulting you through this podcast. All information shared in this podcast is intended to be informative and entertaining in nature. While we make every effort to make sure topics discussed on this podcast are accurate, they may be incomplete or changing in nature. All views and opinions expressed in this podcast by participants are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of Palladian Park. And welcome to Palladian Park's first podcast. My name is Jenna Shaw, and I am one of the co-founders of Palladian Park. And I'm the other co-founder, Colin Wheeler. And basically, we've been friends since college, and uh, we've been meeting up and talking pretty consistently ever since we graduated. And Palladian Park is really just the manifestation of all of those conversations that we've had throughout the years. Definitely. We're two people that we really do love to learn kind of nerds in that way and we you know for the last five or six years have been having these conversations and the last year have been building Palladium Park and hope to have that as part of it and so part of the learning aspect that we have been building is we do blog posts on our website at palladiumpark.com and then also we include those blog posts in our newsletter that comes out the first Saturday of every month an email newsletter Um, and in addition to the blog posts we also have things that we're exploring things that we've been reading and things that we've been thinking about Um, And we're hoping that's good content that you'll enjoy as much as we enjoy writing it. And in this podcast, once we get through, this is, we're only going to do for the first episode, this intro, but we're going to hit on the, what do you call it? The newsletter that we did in October and talk about that once Colin finishes uh, this intro. And then in addition to the learning services, um, everything that we've been learning and practicing for the past few years have really grown our skills in decision-making, collaboration, communication, relationship building, stuff like that. And so while we do provide a lot of um, that information free of charge through our learning services, we also do personalize this on an individual or a small group basis through our consulting services, um, which can also be seen at our website at palladiumpark.com. So we do invite you to check that out as well. And please reach out if something on there that we provide um, can be of service to you. You can also sign up for our newsletter there. So if you enjoy this podcast and want to check it out, we'd love to have you be part of the team and get our newsletter. Okay, with that, then let's head into the main event, talking about our first blog post all about mental models. Yeah, the, the first post that we have, um, Jenna, like you said, is about mental models and uh, this is really just a, a overarching introduction to mental models and what they are. Later on, we'll, we'll be diving in more into each one and probably expanding this list as well. Didn't want to overwhelm in this. Plus, these are kind of the more um, popular mental models that get used all the time and talked about frequently. So probably a good place to start. But anyways, mental models are really just kind of tools that, you know, we, we've been 
using a lot in a bunch of our discussions on just trying to uh, think properly and more accurately. And so each model can be used on its own or in conjunction with others. And usually they do work better. They give you a more holistic picture and greater understanding of an issue if you can use multiple in conjunction with others. So that's really what mental models are. There's a lot of people throughout history that are really influential and, and knowledgeable people who have heavily relied upon mental models. Um, and sometimes they're called like principles or something other than mental models, but it, basically it's a way of, of thinking. It's improving your cognitive abilities to assess the world around you. Yeah. And what I really like, what Colin says a lot when we talk about mental models, which the two of us do a lot, is basically each model or principle, whatever you want to use to describe them, are kind of like tools in a tool belt. And so each one's really useful, but it's really when you start using them together that you can really build and grow. And you really want to have multiple tools in your tool belt, tool belt and use them together. As you, So as you start to learn more about it, which Colin's going to keep describing, but yeah, I loved, he's the one that first said that to me. And I think it's a really great illustration of the way that we kind of view mental models and how to apply them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's go ahead and dive right in. So we'll, we'll just be going in order of how we have it laid out on the blog post. So um, should be pretty easy to follow along. So the first one is called The Map is Not the Territory. Um, this is a really popular one and, and something that is highly applicable to a lot of different things that we use throughout our lives. And basically, it, it, the premise of it is, is that we cannot understand and um, take in all of the information around us. Sometimes it's a, a mental constraint. It's just too much um, visual information or uh, auditory information or, or some other kind of sense. But it can also be uh, a time constraint too, is that in order to make a quality decision, it would require far too much time and it, it's just not realistic to do that. So that's where the map is not the territory comes in. You're using these simplifications in order to try to understand something else. And so uh, this can be exemplified through something as simple as using Google Maps when you're driving. That's really not entirely accurate as to how the terrain actually is. And a lot of people can get lost sometimes, even with using uh, GPS guided software like Google Maps. Also, Jenna, we were actually talking the other day about uh, interviews, how interviews are, are an example of the map is not the territory. Um, just because somebody interviews really well, they they speak really well, they they say kind of, you know, the right things to say at the right time doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be a good attorney or engineer or teacher or whatever it is that they are interviewing for. Definitely. And in, in, but still, it's useful to a degree, and and that's kind of what we'll be getting at is that these these are are useful and they have a place but when you become over reliant upon them that's where you can really fall into a trap so when you think that google maps is perfect and you blindly follow it you can get into a dead end or a construction site or something yeah for the case of uh interviewing and hiring you can hire somebody who is really not a not a good fit whole slew of other 
examples and, and we'll be expanding upon this in detail, but that's kind of a general overview. I think so. So yeah. Is there anything I, I kind of left out or want to expand upon? No, I think you, you nailed it. And I think it's one of those ones that the Google map is the quickest one because it's an actual map and it fits this. But once you really start to understand what this means, you see it throughout the world all the time. I feel like in our conversations, um, when we're talking about things that applies all the time to a lot of different situations, the interview is another great, is a great one that doesn't initially, you know, if you're not used to thinking of this, you don't, it might not come up right away, but it's completely right. Where a map, the way I think of it, see if you agree, is like a map really is a tool. And it's a, it's a useful one and a great one to, you know, sh- help you along the way. But also it, it's important to know that it's just a tool. It doesn't represent reality. It's a way that we, you know, use it to navigate the world, but it simplifies it in a way. And so the same thing with an interview, right? It's a, you know, like anyone that says that like an interview is perfect and you can always get the right people has never been in HR and never done recruitment because everyone knows outsider, you know, people that don't fit always sneak in no matter how well you get your process down. It's just that. And so it's, it, they understand that it's a useful tool, but understanding its limitations, that all maps in whatever way you say it have a limitation. And so that's the nice thing about knowing it is knowing how to use them, but also the limitations of those things. And yeah, the more you look at it, the more we say it all the time where you go, maps, not the, ter- I'll tell him, I'll tell Colin a story and he'll go maps, not the territory. And like, yes, that's totally it. <laughs> so. Yep. Yeah. Highly applicable in a lot of different areas. Yep. Where you, th- you think, you know, but it's not quite mm-hmm. what you think. So cool. Well, is there anything else you want to talk about? Maps I think that's it on mental models. We can move on to the next one. Probabilistic thinking. Yeah, so probabilistic thinking is another uh, mental model, and it's basically used to try to estimate like the likelihood of an outcome. It's a great way to look at the world around you, basically looking in probabilities of what's likely to happen, especially for math nerds around there. It's a nice one that comes naturally. And Colin and I are both, we both have engineering backgrounds, so this one speaks to our heart, definitely. And basically understanding, um, you think probabilistically, it helps you kind of do a cost-benefit analysis of the world of if something's worth doing or not, what the probability that it'll work out or not is it worth doing is it a fool's errand or is it something worthwhile it overall i think that's kind of is there anything else you want to add about it it's a that's a very high level look um Mm -hmm. it's kind of a way of seeing the world in numbers a little bit and helping make calculations and decision making yeah and i the part i like about it is how it removes the this binary thinking that we have it's either Uh, something's either black or white good or bad Mm. Um, and great point. how, yeah, how rare it is that something actually falls into one of those categories and much more likely it's, it's in the middle. Yeah. Probabilistic thinking helps you kind of view something as not zero or a hundred, but rather a number in between. And you and I, we love the gray. So it's another yes. reason we like this one. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it though, that I hadn't explicitly thought of that it helps make sense of the world without making clear binary categories, which we both agree very rarely ever apply to the world. Mm -hmm. Truly black and white thinking. Yeah. Cool. Yep. Want to go to the next one? All right. Um, So next up is thought experiments. And it's the nice thing about a lot of these is they're basically what they sound like. And so a a thought experiment is something that you're, you're just constructing potentialities for future outcomes based upon decisions or um, actions taken today. And so the benefit of this is that it really uh, provides you a level of insight as to what the right decision is. Um, and even if it you, it's not, you don't have a bunch of 
options for what you can do. You're kind of backed into a corner. Well, then this affords you the opportunity to look into the future and see what kind of consequences that are likely to propagate because of this. And you can therefore then start planning for some of those potentialities. And I think thought experiments are really good to to form your own opinion or especially trying to take someone else's side, like to try to understand someone else's viewpoint too, because it's not really the threat, right? Because you're like, it's just for sake of thought experiment. Um, it's easier to put down your defenses and to look at um, either your, if you have a strongly held belief to look at it more thought provokingly, or even someone else's to try to understand it better, because then it takes some of the sting out of it and allows you to really critically analyze it. And yeah, every time you say experiment, it feels like it's you're back in high school, you know, science class doing that just with the future and whatever you're trying to you mm-hmm. know, discover. Yeah. In a way, I like, I like to think about these as, if you remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books. Yes. So basically, whenever you get to a fork in the book, you you pick away, and then the story progresses uh, based upon that decision. And so if you were to make a different decision about what happens in the book, then you flip to a different page and a different narrative unfurls. And that's kind of what thought experiments are, is where you're kind of exploring every, well, as much as you want to the different paths that could potentially arise from each juncture. So it's, yeah, kind of like a choose your own adventure book. For sure. That's a great way of putting it. I think the Stoics did that a lot. Colin and I are both fans of Stoicism. Can I say that for you? I think I can accurately, we talk about it enough. Um, And Mm -hmm. they, they advocate it for, and it's an interesting tack to take of like, um, I forget there's an actual term they use, but it's basically like a negative thought experiment of picturing what can go wrong, not for the sake of, dwelling in that but that you free so that you can prepare and be ready for it and then the threat's not as large so it's that way you know what is possible you try to plan as much as you can then to for those negative things to be prepared for them and then understand too that you can handle them if they do come because a lot of times what we imagine the worst case scenario doesn't turn out that way it might it's not as bad as we think so it's an interesting kind of spin on a thought experiment from the stoics too Mm -hmm. anything else with that one don't think so Awesome. So our next one is very much tied in with thought experiments. It's second order thinking. And some people also say uh, second level thinking, pretty much synonymous. Um, but it's basically looking into the future and trying to take into considerations, you know, the basically the unintended consequences or the second order consequences of what you're about to do. So it's almost a way of looking into the effects of the effects of the decision, which sounds like a big thing, but it's really just trying to understand. We're pretty good at understanding that uh, pretty good is debatable, but our immediate consequences to the decision, whether good or bad, um, or we're at least better at that. But the second order, the conse- you know, the second order effects the down the road, the effects of the effects are a lot harder for us to anticipate. And a lot of times we don't even think about them because it's not natural for our, at least I find, do you think that's true? Where it's not our default reaction to think that far down the road. Um, right. Yeah, I agree. And it makes me think about System one and system two, two thinking from mm-hmm. uh, Danny Kahneman's work. Totally. Where sy- system one is just heuristic. It's real quick, split second. You don't really think about it. And it, it can be inaccurate, but the, the benefit of it is, um, takes very little time and energy. Mm-hmm. Whereas second order thinking re- is more like system two thinking where you have to actually slow down, um, put some thought and effort into exploring what the actual answer is, the solution. And really the... So from our engineering backgrounds, that is not the path of least resistance. 
So people really aren't incentivized to do that from just a, a energy usage perspective. Well, and actually, I think you, we touched on it in the uh, blog post as well, which I think is a good point too. It's like each order you take, it gets so much more complex and so much more difficult to do that. And so a lot of times second order is usually where we stop. Sometimes third order might make sense, but after that it gets, it's so impossible to understand all the circumstances and all the factors that it's almost, it's not worth, you know, in terms of probabilistic thinking or cost benefit, it it becomes too much energy and not worthwhile because you just almost have no chance of accuracy. So really second order is usually where most people cut it off and where it, it's still worthwhile. But yeah, like you said, it takes, it takes more energy and time because it is, it is more complex, but I think it's worthwhile. Don't you? Oh yeah. 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 Cause yeah, absolutely. Not, not for every single thing like, Oh yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, the point of this and mental models is that really, I don't know, we're, we're trying to find useful things. And so, not all of these apply to every situation. So yeah, if it, if it's something tri- trivial, then this wouldn't apply, but more profound um, things that have severe consequences. This is a, a really good tool to employ. Yeah. And I think overall, it's a good point with just mental models overall is the nice thing is most of them are pretty easy to understand. Like you said, their name is pretty indicative of what they are. So they're not that difficult to understand. It's good to know about them, but then the real fun part in the challenge comes in knowing when to apply them and how to apply them together and when it makes sense to do different ones and things like that. That's where the real fun comes in with that for sure. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Let's move on to the next one. Spectral thinking. So spectral thinking is in, it has different meanings, but the way that we kind of look at this, or at least I do, I don't want to put words in your mouth, (laughs) but to us, it's, it's kind of viewing things on a spectrum and so often so like let's say the spectrum from um, let's put some numeric value to it it's from negative 10 is the left extreme zero is the middle and positive 10 is the right extreme so often people just look at one half or maybe if they look a little bit beyond that half um, but really kind of what i've seen is that people just look at one half and so an example of this is what we outlined in the blog and it's from the book anti-fragile by Nassim Taleb and in it he talks about he's defining kind of the premise of his book of uh, anti-fragility so he he goes around asking people what what fragile means and so the general consensus is that it's things that gain or sorry things that uh, are hurt from disorder or some kind of negative effect or uh, event. Um, If they are destroyed or um, injured, then they're fragile. And so then he said, okay, what would you call the opposite of fragile? And most people said robust. And Nassim says, well, you know, if we define fragile as something that really suffers from um, adverse um, events, then the opposite would be that instead of suffering from it, you would gain from it. And robust things don't gain. Uh, robust things can withstand bad events, but they don't. They definitely don't gain from it. And so then he said, rather, the opposite of fragile would be anti-fragile. And so that 
really in that part of the book where he's discussing this, he's illuminating an entire other side of the spectrum that people weren't thinking about. They're just thinking about fragile and robust, and that was the the extent of it. And so for a whole host of other items, this can be applied to. So you, you're, it's kind of illuminating the big picture of what the spectrum actually is instead of just looking at half of it. Yeah, a way of almost expanding your conception of what is possible too, in some ways, or just broadening. Because a lot of times it's natural. We just see it as one way of, because at first when you hear, you know, fragile versus robust, you're like, yeah, that's its opposite, you know, kind of similar to when we talk about start with a definition. It's like, yeah, that seems right, but it's not the, it's not an exact opposite. And so when you actually look at it, it expands the world a lot more where robust has a place in it, but it's not the end point. It's really just the center point between fragile and anti-fragile. And so when you apply it to the world, it's a good way of, seeing more of it and understanding more holistically, I think, of the spectrum and what what's actually going on and what's actually possible. Mm-hmm. Well, I think from there, unless you have anything else to add, Colin, we'll go to our next one. Colin and I love this one, Circle of Competence. This is one of our big heavy hitters. Um, it's basically, it's this is a lovely one because it has the imagery within it of, we always think about it, it's like a perimeter of what you know, of what you're competent in, your knowledge of the world. And everybody has that circle Um, And whenever you're within your own circle of competence, you're likely to make better decisions because you're informed um, and should hopefully know what you're doing. Um, And so from there, one of the important parts is discovering, at least what we think of, is like figuring out where your circle of competence lies, trying to get an accurate representation of what your circle of competence is, um, and then hopefully trying to grow it. With Palladian Park, I think that's what we're trying to do right now is we both want to keep, always keep growing our circle of competence and I think too, an important part of learning is focusing on your own, not because somebody else might have a way larger circle than you. That's not the point. It's all about growing your circle of competence as best you can. But then where it really gets fun is when you start working in teams or working with other people and seeing where their circle of competence lies versus yours and a really good team. And it's really what we talk about a lot of the value of diversity is getting people with a lot different circles with, you know, in different areas than you. So that that way your whole team's circle of competence takes up a lot more area because you have a lot of people that know all the same things. You have a very narrow, might be very deep what you know, but it's a very narrow circle that you're working within. Do you agree, Colin, with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like the best thing. And I think it works on teams and working, but also with friends too. It's good to have people that have complementary skills. I think Colin and I, hopefully, I think through time, people will start to see where our, we have a lot of overlap, but we also have a lot of different interests. And it, it's a good way too, because when we attack problems, we bring up different experiences from different places within our own circles of competencies. And so it allows for a more holistic look at whatever we're trying to tackle. Do you have anything you want to add? Not really. I just, I really like how a byproduct of your circle of competence, when it, it grows so too does the perimeter of ignorance that you have. Oh, like how could I have forgotten that? That's so important. Gosh dang. Yeah. Thank goodness you're and... here. <laughs> I love that part. Well, yeah, it's it, it's fantastic. And, you know, it, it really kind of helps explain why so many very intelligent people can be so humble. It's because they realize there's a, a ton of stuff that they don't know. And then conversely, too, um, a lot of people who have a very small circle of competence, their perimeter is very small. There's a lot of stuff out there that they don't know about, but the perimeter that they have is very small, so they don't realize how little that is out there that they don't know about. Yeah, that's yeah, that's another part that it's 
it's so true and we both talk about it a lot where it almost seems counterintuitive at first we're like what but then when you really think about it it completely makes sense and I I remember an example from my life I remember noticing this from a young age I didn't have these eloquent words that Colin just said now to understand it but I remember I grew up playing the cello and was like classically trained and I was fine but there were those people that from a young age because I started in fourth grade that were incredible like they were those people that just you knew they had something you didn't have. And I remember as we got older too, like they were clearly better than everyone else, but the best musicians that I played with like that would never say they were great musicians. And then I went to college and there was a lot of, not that you need to be classically trained, I'm not saying that, but a lot of amateur musicians would say, I love music, I'm really good at it. And I'd get excited and I'd hear them play and they were very amateur and not great. And I realized, oh, the best ones, and I think this applies to a lot of different areas. Like the best people at what they do don't have to tell you that they're very good at it. They know. And they also are aware that there's always someone better. There's always more that you can do. And I think that's a direct symptom of, like you said, the bigger your perimeter around your like circle of competence, you know, the greater you realize that you have unknown around it. So yeah, I think it applies throughout all of life for sure. Thank goodness you brought that up. I can't believe I forgot that. <laughs> all right. First principles is next up. And this one is, this will go real quick. It's a very simple one. It's basically you're, you're diving down deep to the most basic assumption that uh, anything is built off of. And so this has been around for a very long time. Aristotle uh, defined it as the first basis from which a thing is known. And so that's really it. You're trying to find the foundation of a principle, a law, really how things work. This is a big one for a lot of people who are scientists or very technical in thinking um, is it's kind of Newtonian too, where you're trying to break down each individual part into its most basic pieces. And from there you can build it up. I think a couple of months ago you said this and I really liked it where you're like, and even between different occupations or other things, their first principles can be different. Like a pure scientist that's doing research versus an engineer might break down their first principles differently because of, you know, one's more for research and more for uh, theoretical and, and experimentation versus an engineer who make a lot of assumptions and for more efficiency sake of applying it into the world. Um, and so I really liked that idea. I hadn't thought of it before that a first principle in one area might change somewhere else based on what you're actually trying to do and how you're applying it into the world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Depends on the situation and the people involved. Yeah. So I think from that one, then we're going to go to, which I talked a little bit earlier about, is start with the definition. Uh, this is one Colin brought up to me a while ago, and I've kind of been obsessed with it ever since you said it, because it's so simple, but it's so great. Um, I think our world can use a lot more of it right now. It's basically, as you said, you start with the definition um, of whatever you're talking about and making sure that everyone around you and whoever you're trying to converse with and talk with, that you um, agree upon that definition. Because like you said, words have a lot of different meanings and in different situations can mean different things. And the same thing for words, concepts, however you want to apply it. Basically the starting ground where hopefully, and it happens a lot now when Colin and I talk, we'll be like, wait, stop. Let's make, and he'll, he'll ask good, like clarifying questions to make sure that we have a common language and are starting from the same point on whatever we're talking about. Um, and it really helps, I find, with avoiding miscommunication or helping to mitigate some of that right off the top um, and kind of give you a common ground when discussing something or working with people or whatever, however you're using it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Words mean different things to different people. So um, it is vitally important if you want to have a good conversation with somebody to, all right, where's the foundation? And usually foundation is what 
words actually mean, the words that they're using and that you're hearing or that you're using and they're hearing. And so if you can get on the same page with that, then you can actually have a productive conversation. And when you actually define something, I found this, I'm, I'm a bit of a word nerd. I think Colin is too. And it's funny when you start really looking at trying like, or ask someone to define something. Cause sometimes I'll do that. Like what, or if someone asks me a definition of a word that I know, my first instinct is to give the synonym instead of the actual definition, right? Another word similar to it, but that's a pretty surface level way. It's not a, it's not bad. It's a good, it can be a good starting point, but it's not the full definition of things. And so when you actually start applying, start the definition to your life, I found it, I'm applying it more and more in my life to really say, what does that actually mean? And making sure that I understand it and the people around me do, because sometimes we have a very superficial understanding and we don't realize, and I say we a lot, I'm putting myself in this hundred percent. I'll think I'll know something. And then when I actually look at the definition or try to figure it out, I realize how superficial my understanding was. And so if anything, too, a side effect of it with other people is hopefully you'll come out with a better understanding of what you're talking about or working on as well, I think. Yeah, that's a great point. little tangent but we like tangents. <laughs> <laughs> okay, inversion is up next. Um, this is a big one for Charlie Munger, who is uh, co-chairman of Berkshire Hathaway with uh, Warren Buffett. And basically, inversion is where you are attacking something from a different angle. You're inverting it. So instead of start, starting at the beginning, if, if you get stuck, start at the end. Um, reverse engineer something. And it, it really gives, a, it kind of allows you a holistic perspective. Like you have an actual tangible thing in your hand, which is the problem. And you're rotating it around trying to find the best way to understand what it is. And it also kind of gives you a more holistic understanding of it. So if you try to attack it from one angle and you get so far, and then you attack it from another angle, you're understanding it better than you would if it was just from the one angle. And this is something that a German mathematician called Carl Jacob, um, full name was like Carl Gustav Jacob Jacobi or something. What a name. What a name. Must have had like big family or something. (laughs) But he always said, invert, always invert. And that was his tactic for solving a bunch of math problems, which he was very famous in his day um, for solving very difficult math, mathematical problems. And it was because he was, he'd start at the beginning, he'd start from the end, he'd, he'd uh, pick a point in the middle, work from there, um, and really kind of flesh it out from all different angles through inversion. Definitely. Um, I have an important question, Colin. Is that the first time you've mentioned Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett? Today it is. It is. Okay. We'll have a little like tally. I don't think on podcast you can do that, but a little tally counter because uh, Colin and I completely agree, as you should, loves Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. They're two really smart dudes. He's not the only one. Lots of people do. But I have a feeling their names will come up. They have a lot of good wisdom that they'll come up on this podcast multiple times. So I felt like I needed to celebrate the first time of probably yeah. many. Um, we need like a, a little bell sound icon or something <laughs> for each one. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and then like maybe if it becomes a big enough thing, you get to meet them and you'd be like, there we go one in their fan club. It'll be great. We uh, need to hurry. They're getting old. Yeah, for sure. Got to fast track <laughs> that as soon as we can. Um, but no, I really agree with what you said on inversion. And I like the way you talked about it. Got me thinking of, it's a great way to, especially, you know, those when you're looking at a problem and amount, like you said, with the mathematician, that's a great starting point, but we've all had those things where we're trying to tackle a problem and you just feel like you, 
like our your eyes are becoming fuzzy because you keep looking at it and can't find a solution inverting is such a great way of switching it up and changing it and getting a fresh it almost feels like a fresh pair of eyes on a problem or other things because just it's a totally new way of looking at it because we've all been in those ruts of, of that and we either ask someone else to come in but with inversion you can do it with yourself of just trying to tackle a problem from a whole new way which is always a good thing so right yeah and maybe another example that that might be worthwhile mentioning um just to help understand this so for like investors a lot of people who invest are trying to make a a return while not losing money and so really they're they're hyper focused on what's going to give me the best return and so a lot of really successful investors like Ray Dalio and amongst many others, um, Warren Buffett, they've said instead of trying to make the most money, like the highest return, they're trying to not lose money. And so that's inverting a strategy that they have and um, it gives them a different way of thinking, okay, well, if I'm not trying to make the most money that I can, instead I'm trying to conserve the wealth that I have um, how would I do that? And so it's kind of similar objectives, but you're you're taking different approaches to it. Definitely, and I think with that, that to do that, you need humility in some ways. To it's almost a, a different way of looking. Of instead of I can do everything, I'm going to maximize everything to say, well, what could go wrong, and how do I protect what I have and not do that? And so in some ways, that's and it probably is a, a, a sign of their age too, right? Of some of the wisdom over time to realize like things can go wrong and things can, and so understanding that it's not a weakness, it's good to understand where you are and how to keep what you have um, and to invert it and to do that and allow yourself to entertain that notion that none of us are invincible in that way. Well, from there, do you have anything else to add? I didn't want to cut you off. Great. Nope. So our next one is start then optimize. This is a, this is a really big one. Um, I think that, yeah, the first line of it that we say is overcoming inertia is difficult. Amen. You know, the idea that, you know, an object in motion tends to stay in motion, an object at rest tends to stay at rest. And um, yeah, I think it works both ways. So it's important to just get going and start, like we said. And once you get going and once you get into it, you have experience too to understand kind of what you're getting into. And then you can optimize and make changes as you go. Um, and another way I think we've kind of talked about this, even with Palladian Park, right? That's our model here was basically let's just, we've been wanting to, we've been talking about this for a year now and really wanted to, help, you know, build a company that helped us learn, but also hopefully helped sh- share that learning with other people and bring people into the, a community where we can find like-minded people and keep growing and changing together. And it was like, it's so easy to get imposter syndrome or other things to say, don't do it. Right. Um, and we were like, no, let's just, let's do it. We have the passion. We had a plan. Yes. But is it perfect? No. And that's okay. Um, and like Voltaire said, perfect is the enemy of good. And that's, really the notion of like just getting started and that way too, right. You go into something with an idea. Another good thing about this is sometimes you get into something, you think you're going to love it and you don't. Um, a lot of people that start new businesses do that. That's what recently what we talked about Colin, right. Whereas like you think going in, you're like, Oh, I want to run. I love baking. I want to run a bakery, my own bakery. And you don't realize that means you have to become a, a business owner. So you have to do a lot more business side. So you might be a technical expert in baking. That doesn't mean you're going to enjoy, you know, having to do, all the accounts and doing accounting and all that kind of stuff, as well as what you initially got into it. So a good way to start is to start smaller or however, you know, makes sense to start for you and make sure that you know what you're doing and that you want to actually be doing it as well. It's another aspect of this. So 
Right. Yeah. If you start before it's perfect, then really what you're saving yourself is uh, uh, the resources that you can't get back, which is your time and your energy. So yeah, if it's uh, if you start it before it's perfect, and then you find out this is not the right thing to be doing, it, it's much better to learn that within like um, a month, two months, six months, rather than five years of working on it and making it perfect. And then when you launch something that's perfect, but not what you really it didn't turn out the way you expected it, uh, you, you really don't lose that much in, in terms of uh, the resources you can't get back. Yeah. And what just kind of came up in my mind too is we both come from the engineering background. And so um, we work a lot with contractors and with, you know, the guys and gals that actually go out and do the work. And you realize the, the joke we always say, it's called the school of hard knocks just because some of them didn't go to college or it's like they learned a ton out in the field and it can apply to anything though, where it's like actually having experience on the job, right? Schooling is a lovely thing and is important, but you learn so much more when you actually go out and have to do the dang thing, right? When you are out in the field, whatever that field may constitute in your line of work, that's where you learn the most. Um, And sometimes they're hard lessons, sure, but starting is the best way to do that because, you know, if you only have a theoretical understanding, um, it's, it's not the same. It's not quite, you don't fully understand until you get out there and that's where you learn the quickest and do all of that as well. So it's better to just start um, instead of, yeah, trying to wait till you're perfect. Then that moves us into Occam's razor, which is a really short one, which is kind of fitting for it because Occam, Occam's razor is all about simplicity. It basically says it's much more likely for something that is simple, like a simple explanation of something to be true as opposed to complicated ones. And so this, you can think about this in a ton of different ways, but if you're walking down the street and you see a lady who has uh, like a, a briefcase, you could say, okay, that's a lady who works in an office. And so that's one option. Or if the other option is that's a lady who's an attorney and she actually has her own firm Um, and she went to law school and then got her LLM. It's much more likely for the first one. She works in an office to be correct rather than all of the others that you put together. So um, that's basically Occam's razor in a nutshell. It's really something that a a simple explanation is much more likely to be correct rather than a complicated one. Can I just say I'm laughing, not at you, but that that was your thought. (laughs) This happens a lot with us, Colin, where (laughs) you're – your explanation is totally spot on, but something I never would have thought of where mine, I was thinking a lot of the like deepest, most profound truths, I think of, you know, the universe or something that seems like it's grasping at a truth, right. Of life and the meaning of life and all of those things um, are usually very simple. It's like almost those parables or those things that you read those like old proverbs that are really short and cut to the heart of the matter. And it's like simplicity doesn't equal ease either. Right. Like some, because something simple doesn't make it easy. But yeah, I found that in my life too. Like the things that really hit, home the most and are the most wise are the most simple which is very much Occam's razor Mm -hmm. that is a perfect example of how Colin and I think differently (laughs) this is very applicable very detail-oriented and mine is huge out in the universe but both illuminating the same thing just from a different area of the circle it takes all types amen brother amen (laughs) are we good to move on to the next razor or do you have anything else okay so going off of that, it's Hanlon's razor. This is another favorite of ours, I would say, or one that we talk about a lot. It's it's also pretty simple, but once you 
it hits on you. It's I think it's really true because it's basically saying you shouldn't attribute malice or base malice to other people or evil wrongdoing to other people. Um, instead, you should attribute it to ignorance or stupidity, where most people overall aren't trying to do bad in the world. Most people, they just don't know any better. It's a, We talked about this a few weeks ago, I think, and really got into it where it's like, yes, there are exceptions to every rule. There are you know, bad people or, which I don't like that word, but there are some, there can be true evil in the world, there, you know, but that's definitely, I think, when you attribute it to people is the exception to the rule. So it's a better, when you think probabilistically, right, about the world, it's a much better strategy to use Hanlon's razor, because I think it's supremely true, is that most people, everyone thinks they're the good guy. Most people do, and they're trying their best, and they just don't know any better. And it's a much more forgiving way to look at the world as well, um, and makes you less angry and more apt to be more empathetic and to talk to people, which I think is a better strategy overall and something the world needs more of, I would say. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yep. I don't have anything to add. That was perfect. Wow. Man. <laughs> I'm getting a big head over here. I have to pop it pretty soon. <laughs> All right. Well, then in that case, we'll, we will move on. <laughs> Uh, following incentives is the next one. So in the blog post, we say that, you know, a, a common phrase that people say is follow the money. That's basically what follow incentives um, means. And money is a type of incentive, but it's not the only type. And so we were talking earlier about um, in second order thinking about why people don't do it. Well, uh, it takes a lot more time and effort and energy. That's a pretty good incentive for them not to do it. There can be a whole host of other ones like if you are are in a certain job and you're expected to perform a task a certain way then and and that's how you get your paycheck to for your housing your food all basically your um standard of living is dependent upon that well then that's a pretty strong incentive for you to um, behave a certain way i really like how charlie munger has this quote show me the incentive and i'll show you the outcome so it it kind of and and this does play perversely too so it's not all good things um kind of what comes to mind is the recent wells fargo uh accounts scandals it basically in a nutshell it was these uh salespeople at the banks who were required to sell so many um accounts and uh, that's what they were incentivized to do they they got bonuses or or their salaries were dependent upon it and um once they kind of got out on the curve so far doing things the right way, um, but they still had to meet the numbers. Then they kind of had to cross the line of what is uh, permissible and morally correct. So incentives are very, very powerful motivators to for how people behave. So true. I think it's really good you brought up the negative side too. It's like anything, it's how you use it, right? Incentives can help you incentivize you towards good aims or not so good aims, but it helps to a lot of people go, I can't believe this bad thing happened, whatever. But most of the time when you really look, especially through history or now when something, you know, whether it's some sort of scandal happened or whatever, usually the incentives are there. If you really, you know, when you actually, a lot of people don't want to look, they just see the headline, but most of the time you can watch, sometimes it's money, but whatever incentive it is, you follow the track and it's easy to see how that person or group of people were led down that road. And so hopefully you can use that to in the future, right, we can all use that going forward to try to mitigate those and get rid of that feeling. Also, it reminded me of uh, something that our 
college professor, Julia. This is an old school and it brought this back. One time she was talking to a group of us in school and she said, you know, right now, like in college and when you're young professionals, money is a great motivator and incentive. You know, when you're managing people, that's a great thing. But as people get older and as they get more secure, a lot of times that lessens and other things become more important. So it's important to when you're dealing with people, and I can think that this can be for business or any other part of life, knowing what incentivizes them. And that can help you meet people where they're they're at and hopefully get better results for yourself and for them by understanding them. Because like you said, money is a powerful motivator, no doubt, but it's definitely, it's not the only one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Blast from the past. I know. Right. It's a few years ago. Yeah. But apt. Thank you. And with that, that's our first blog post in a nutshell with a few anecdotes mm-hmm. along the way. Yeah. More to come too in the future. Thank you so much for listening to our first podcast of Palladium Park, all about our first blog post on mental models. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe so you get notified as we upload more episodes. Please feel free to check out our website, palladiumpark.com, to get further information about our learning and consulting services or the blog posts. And you can also subscribe to our newsletter there, which comes out the first Saturday of every month. So with that, thanks again for listening and we're out.